Lord, we thank you for giving us the privilege of looking at your word. We confess that we are often confused and we are often uh, led away from the things that are most important. We pray that you would help us now, open our eyes, help us to see wonderful things out of your law. We ask these mercies in Jesus' name, amen. Rose Blumkin, have you heard of her? She was able to finagle past Russian guards and actually make it to the United States. She didn't know any English, and um, she had no formal education. 1937, she borrowed $500 from her brother and began a business called Nebraska Furniture Mart. Fifty years later, the company had annual sales of $10 million. It was so profitable that it got the attention of uh, Warren Buffett, you know, the finance wizard. And he purchased 90% of the company for $60 million. Up until the time of the sale of that business, Rose was working seven days a week, up until the age of 100. When she sold the business, she let a little time pass, and then started another one on the other side of town, and this was called Mrs. B's Clearance and Factory Outlet. Competitors thought that she was violating the fair trade agreement, that she really wasn't selling at a profit, and, they were, and she was just trying to put them out of business. And so they took her to court. The judge not only ruled in her favor, but she sold him $1,400 worth of carpet. Rose Blumpkin is a woman who could keep her eye on the ball. And isn't it the case that the Lord asks us as Christians to do the same thing? He wants us to keep first things first so that we finish strong. And that's really what the passage we just read is all about. 2 Samuel chapter 18 beginning with verse 19 down through, down through verse 33. Finishing well, finishing strong, keeping our eye on the ball. Well, how shall we look at these verses? Let me suggest a path for us. Um, let's begin by noting just the way in which the passage is structured. We'll look at the outline kind of in a, in a brief way. Uh, there are competing messengers and competing messages. And then after that, there's, uh, well, what we might call self-desperation. And then finally, we'll take a look at irreversible loss. Now, to get these verses in order, to get these verses in order, let's remember what First and Second Samuel are about. Uh, the Lord has developed uh, for his people 
a kingship. Saul is the first king. David is the second king. And Absalom, David's second, well, third son, aspires to be the next king. He aspires to overthrow his father. These verses that we just read are a unit. You can see that because if you just look at your Bible, you'll see that verse 18 is the end of Absalom's life. There's a monument made for him. He makes a monument for himself. And uh, then we come to verse 33 that we just read, and you'll see that David now cries out in sadness. He laments Absalom's death. And so this is a package deal. Verses 19 to 33. So let's first look at the competing messages and messengers. You'll notice in verse 19 that Ahimaaz comes to the fort. He comes to Joab. They're out in the field. They're still on the battlefront. And he says, let me run and give good news to the king. And Joab says, no way. The king's son is dead. We might just pause here and say to ourselves, there's a difference going on between the way in which Ahimaaz is looking at the events and the way in which Joab is looking at them. Joab has the sensitivity to think about how this news of the king's son's death will impact the king. And we would hope that when you're talking to people, trying to encourage them, that you are sensitive to where they're coming from. I had a time of loss in my life once where somebody responded, and I'm pouring out my heart, and this person responds this way, oh, you'll be able to get over it. And my response was, I don't want to get over it. We hope that you'll take a page out of Joab's book here and be sensitive when you're talking to people. Look at how they view the situation. So Joab then says to the Cushite, uh, you go and you tell what's happened. And so off he goes. I hope that you will see in those verses the tension of the situation. The narrator is helping us get to a deeper tension, but he does through this dialogue first between the messengers and the messages that they will send. After that, what do we find? The next section is verses 24, uh, really through 27. And now we're going to get closer to the real issue of the passage, uh, some internal angst. And you'll see how it's developed. David is now sitting uh, between two gates. Where is he? The, the, the narrator turns our attention from the battlefield now to where David is. But where is David? What town? Does anybody know? Ah, Mahanaim. Right, exactly. Uh, we saw that last week and the week before. And the word Mahanaim means two camps. 
again, the writer is helping us see some tension here. David is not only at Mahanaim, the place of two camps, he is also between two gates. And that language, between two gates, reminds us of another in-between. Remember? Last week, Absalom caught in the tree, and he's hanging between heaven and earth. Is it by chance that the writer uses that same language? I don't think so. I think what he's doing is he's pointing out that not only was Absalom hanging between heaven and earth there in the oak tree, but it's also the case now that David himself is, as it were, hanging between what will happen. Will I get good news or bad news about the results of the battle? David is waiting. He's there between the gates. So now let's look at the sequence of events as the messengers come and the logic that is, that is attached to those sequence of events. First of all, verses 24 and 25, there's a watchman up on the, uh, on the wall and he says, there's a runner coming. And what's David's reaction? He says, if he's alone, there is news in his mouth. What kind of news? Well, we don't get it in an English translation, but the Hebrew word is really good news. And uh, so much so that it's translated by an ancient Greek version of the Old Testament uh, by the same word from which we get our English term, the gospel. So when David hears the word, a watchman is coming, he responds, oh, this is good news. And it's good news, he says, if he's alone. Then what happens? Verse 26, the watchman saw another man running. The watchman called from the gate and said, Another man is running alone, and the king said, he also brings news, and guess which word David uses? The same one translated good news. Now, how does that fit together? David has already told us if there's one runner coming, he has good news. Now we have another runner coming, and he says, whoa, this is good news as well. David, it seems, to be trying to bolster his own spirits here. There's a conflict with his logic. And so now verse 27. Right, the watchman says, oh, this other runner looks like a Himaaz. And what's David say there? Ah, please notice. The king said, um, where am I? Oh yeah, uh, verse 27. He, that is Ahimaaz, he is a good man and comes with good news. And guess which words David uses there as he thinks about this second runner whose presence already contradicts his own logic. He says, oh, 
this is good news, different word, and then he adds, he comes with good news, it's really, he comes with good, good news. Five times, David engages in what we might call self-deception. Good news, good news, good news, good news, all against the evidence. Now, David's hope is that Absalom is safe, but he is really headed toward despair, and we're going to see in a moment panic. Now, we want to pause here and say, given the situation, it would be right and understandable for a parent to grieve over the death of his son or daughter. Oh, it would be appropriate for a person to grieve over the loss of a husband or wife or cousin or friend. It's perfectly understandable. But here is David now between these two gates. And we see the, um, the tension here in a couple other ways. First of all, there's the watchman. And he's up high and David is down low. And then besides the watchman and that disparity between those two people, there's this dialogue that David has. Somebody is coming. David's down low, oh yeah, this is good news. But David's speech is really off into the air. He's not talking to anybody, he's just making comments to himself as it were. And what's really happening is David is very much alone in this. And he's concerned with himself. There's no reference whatsoever in this account to David's interest in his army, the nation, his family. He's simply focused on Absalom. And then please also notice that there's a difference between the observation that goes on here and uh, its interpretation. The watchman, uh, he records as a camera would record. There's one runner, now there's another runner. Oh yeah, it looks like he's a him as. And what does David do? David provides his own interpretation of the events. He's really cut off from reality in this. And we want to pause at this point again and underscore an important truth. David was not designed by the Lord to live life all by himself, and neither are you. You're designed to live life in fellowship, in community with other believers. We need each other. We're weak and often confused. And we need the perspective of other Christians to help us know how to make sense out of our lives. So let me just pause, back up a little bit, and do a couple commercials. So please come to the sing-along tonight, 6 o'clock. We're going to gather here and sing. And being in one another's presence provides benefits that being alone can never provide. And while we're on the subject, uh, please mark 
September 12 on your calendar. After we worship, we're going to have a picnic together, and the focus that morning will be to encourage you to be in a small group. We think that's really important for the life of the church. Well, so what we come here, what we come to here in verses 24 to 27 is really um, the trauma of David's own self-deception, but it doesn't stop there. The last section is very sobering. We're faced with the panic of irreversible loss. This is how now David learns that Absalom has died. Verse 28. Ahimaaz, we know from verse 19, he's an impatient kind of guy. He wants to get on with the action. And so he comes rushing along. And uh, he comes to David. Uh, and what does he say? He cried out to the king, all is well. Now again, we don't get it here, but guess which Hebrew word he uses when he says all is well? Shalom. So he says, shalom. Everything's great, David. Peace to you. And David's reaction? King David said, is it well with the young man Absalom? And what do you suppose David's language is? He's just heard shalom. Now he asks, is it shalom with Absalom? Is it really well with him? And to kind of play, to fill out the play on words, Absalom is made up of two Greek words. The first one, Ab for father, and the second one, shalom for peace. Ahimehaz, shalom. David, shalom with my son, whose name reminds me of peace. Now, what's going on? Ahimehaz and David are speaking past one another. Ahimaaz is saying, from the perspective of your kingdom, King David, all is well. And David's only interest is, from the perspective of my son, is all well. Ahimaaz is addressing the king as king, and it's a father who's listening to what he has to say. And so now, verse 31, the Cushite comes along, and what does he say? Good news for my lord, the king. We're back to that good news from before. Good news for my lord, the king. And the king says, is it well with the young man, Absalom? And again, we have this play on words. Is it shalom with Ab Shalom? And just think about the different ways in which Joab and the Cushite and Ahimaaz and David approach what's going on. 
Joab and the Cushite are obedient to the truth. We're going to see that in just a moment. Joab and the Cushite are obedient to the truth, and Ahimaaz and David, they are subject to the power of their own ego and their own emotions. I so badly want it to turn out this way. And so David now, when he gets the picture, cries out in verse 33, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, I would have died for you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And in that one short verse, there are eight references to Absalom. Here, David is totally obsessed with Absalom's safety. Absalom has gone so far. He's gone way beyond the bounds of what might be expected for a father to respond to him in any other way than in war. David, for his part, though, is so identified with his son that he's now in a pit from which he can't extricate himself. David asks if Absalom is safe and is in so doing, what he really does is he takes one detail of this whole war story. He lifts it out as if that's the only important issue, that the notion of his role as king no longer has much importance for him or for the people of God. Now, David should have realized he couldn't have his cake and eat it too. It couldn't be both ways. He couldn't have a rebellious son who takes over the kingdom and he continued to serve as king. It was impossible. Retaining one presupposes losing the other. And at this point, we ought to say, this situation is one for which Absalom, not David, was responsible. So here's David between these two gates. And will it be a restored kingdom? Or will he have the satisfaction of a restored fatherhood? I hope that you see there's disintegration taking place here, brokenness, alienation, isolation. Uh, you know, think about it this way. A historian might have written this very differently. He could have consolidated what we have before us with words something like this. Joab sent the king news of the battle. When David learned that Absalom had died, he went into deep mourning. He could have done it. Why doesn't he? Why is this unpacked in, oh, 10 or 20 times more verbiage than what I just paraphrased for you? Because the writer wants us to get inside David and to lead us to this climax. What happens in David? He takes his eye off his calling. 
He's not thinking about himself as I'm the king. I'm the God-appointed representative here. I have responsibility for a whole nation. And so we want to now ask the question, what do we do with this? What practicality does it provide for our lives in the next week? You're called to be a faithful follower of Jesus, but I think like Christians down through the years, there are times when you take your eye off the ball and you wander over into the weeds. Isn't that right? And so the message here is keep on being faithful to the Lord. Don't be like Peter. He denies Jesus three times, and then what's he do? He says, I'm going fishing. Or what about Thomas? He says, uh -uh, I'm not believing until I put my hand into his, my own fingers into his hands and my hand into his side. That's the only way I'm going to believe. Or how about the young man who runs off at the time that Jesus is arrested, he runs off naked into the shadows. It's easy to get off track, isn't it? And so really what we have here is... David standing before us as the counterpoint or the contrasting figure to Jesus. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, Jesus didn't think equality with God was something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He was made in human likeness. He became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. So God has highly exalted him. The Gospels tell us that Jesus set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem, where he would go and suffer and die. And Jesus taught, seek first the kingdom of his God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There is a singular focus to which God calls his people, and we see it by contrast here with the life of David. We're called to set aside our own hopes and dreams for the sake of something better. And the better thing is the advancement of God's kingdom and the glory of God. Maybe I can illustrate it for you in several ways. When we were um, in Green Bay, center of the world, uh, when we were in Green Bay, uh, we did a little project in the church where we said, why don't you think about somebody in the church, somebody you like, somebody you don't like, doesn't matter, and why don't you secretly try to bless that person's life this week? You can pray about it, come up with the idea, but it needs to be secret. Why? Because Jesus says, do your acts of charity secretly, not in public. So you find a way to do it. One, there was one family in the church where I knew this family and the other family weren't getting along. And I heard through the grapevine, ah, one family received a bouquet of flowers unexpectedly that week. And I thought, I bet I know where they came from. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's one way to perhaps illustrate the point. Let me try it another way. 
You know William Carey, father of modern missions. He went through great suffering over the course of his life. He had a young son die at the age of five. After years and years of working and creating a dictionary and Bible translations, the factory where that material was housed was burned to the ground. And he didn't have any backup on his hard drive. That was back in the early 1800s. You know what he said? He said, well, if you remember my life, remember that I can be a plotter. I can keep on going in the face of disappointment. And uh, then one other way to illustrate this idea of keeping on, finishing well, being strong in the face of difficulty uh, is just a word from uh, the world of sports. There is a term that's called, oh yeah, the quiet eye. If, if you're a soccer player and you're standing there and you're going to have a free kick, one of the things that you need to do is quiet your eye. The way that you quiet your eyes, you glance at the corner of the cage where you want the ball to go. And then as you approach the ball, don't be trying to look where you intend the ball to go. Watch the ball with your foot as you kick it. You want to quiet your mind and quiet your eye so the goal will get where, so the ball will get where it needs to go. And guess what happened? There have been statistics done on this. You can improve, you can improve your you can improve your performance on the soccer field by 50% if you will develop a quiet eye. The same thing is true in golf. Oh yeah, you look where you want the ball to go as you're there with your putter, but don't look at the hole out of one eye and the ball out of the other. Just keep your eye on the ball. It'll improve your strokes. You'll be closer to par if you do that. Or one other way to illustrate the point. Maybe you've heard the story about Bethany Hamilton. If you haven't, let me tell you about her. At age 13, she's an avid surfer. And uh, one day she's out with her friends, and a 14-foot tiger shark comes along and takes her arm off uh, just below the shoulder. She lost 60% of her blood. And uh, whether she survived or not was in question. But she did survive. She survived. She not only survived, she thrived. One month after her accident, she was back on her surfboard. I don't know what I would have done if I were her parent. And four years after that, she wins her first surfing title. But Bethany has a relationship with the Lord. And so she has used this tragedy to write a book produce a movie, um, and encourage people, generally, in following the Lord through the difficulties of life. And her comment on all that she's endured, she said, I've been able to embrace far more people with one arm than I ever could with two. Seek first God's kingdom. Who's the person in your mind to whom you might show some of God's love this week? Lord, we ask you to bless your word to us.
Help us, we pray, to be people who finish well. Help us to keep our eye on the ball. Help us to be single-mindedly, uh, single-minded in what we do because of what you've done for us. And we ask these mercies.